Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Hey, welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode five, being recorded on Thursday, December 10th. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Scott, how goes it? It's going great, Jason. How about you? I am doing terrific. So this week, we're recording on Thursday versus our usual Wednesday, and that was partly to accommodate a trip you had to New York. What took you to New York? Uh, New York was 80% work, 20% pleasure, so my wife and I went up, and we um, had a great time in New York, and I went to three conferences. The first was Ignition, which is put on by Business Insider. I, uh, I was supposed to go last year to see Jeff Bezos, but they did it on Cyber Monday, so I wasn't able to attend. Um, and then this year, uh, they moved it, which was great, but Jeff Bezos didn't go. So it wasn't as exciting as it would have been last year. Uh, and uh, the, the other shows I went to, there was two Wall Street get-togethers. Uh, one was Raymond James, and the other one was Key Bank. Um, which is acquired Pacific Crest, and they've kind of merged together. So it was the, the Key Bank Pacific Crest, which is kind of a mouthful uh, conference uh, up in New York as well. Wow, very cool. So my first thought is, what is Jeff Bezos doing at a conference on Cyber Monday? Yeah, he. Uh, I don't think he really kind of works in the fulfillment center anymore. I think he kind of finally has uh, dusted that off, and it's kind of you know taken a little bit of a higher higher role there. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> uh, so I'm guessing between those three conferences that we probably have uh, lots of topics we could talk about today. Yeah, and in fact, you know, um, we we uh, when we put these things together, we always throw everything on the page, and this is probably the most we've had to trim. I think so. Um, I think the most interesting thing, uh, and we haven't talked about it on the podcast that I'm aware of, uh, and I know you find this interesting too, and I've I've been following it very closely. Uh, is this thing I call chat commerce. And this is where in China, uh, it's a very popular uh, you know way of doing business, of doing e-commerce. And uh, the number one company that does this is WeChat. So uh, the whole kind of riff goes that in China, uh, mobile went from kind of image sharing to social media to messaging. And then that really changed the whole dynamics of that industry. And now the messaging apps have kind of become dominant. So uh, the number one messaging app, app there is WeChat. And then what's happened is it's kind of grown from messaging to become a platform. So you can um, you can book a hotel. There's a whole payment system integrated in there. Uh, and you can buy things, obviously. And you can even, some guy was saying, you can uh, schedule time with your barber now on WhatsApp. Uh, so, I mean, on WeChat. So, so that was interesting. And that was a big topic of, of, um, the, the ignition conference. Um, a lot of it came up. They had, uh, one of the top messaging apps in the U S is called kick K I K. Uh, and if you've never heard of that and you're listening, you're probably not a teenager. It's very popular primarily with teens. Um, and I thought what was interesting is the, the CEO is there and he said, one of the things that really differentiates that platform is, it, unlike all the other messaging apps, it's not tied to your phone number. So you have a little bit of a, a anonymity, um, which seems a little dodgy. But what people like about it is uh, it seems like is if they're playing a game or something, they meet someone and want to have a conversation with them, they would give them their kick. And then 
if they don't like that person, they end up to be kind of a creeper kind of a person. They can just shut them down versus when you give out any of your other messaging, it's usually tied to your phone number. And then now you've got this person you've met online that has your phone number. So that's kind of their big innovation that, that has caused them. They have something like 300 million active users. So, so what came out of that discussion that I thought was pretty interesting um, is, so, so first of all, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there and see, you know, what, what you think about that whole chat commerce thing, um, any use cases you've seen, you've actually probably traveled to these, these countries more than I have. Uh, we have folks at ChannelVisor that do do this and we have a big office in China and they tell me about it, but uh, I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on chat commerce. Then there's a couple other stats I, that they threw out I wanted to share. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So we talk about chat commerce a lot. I have a, a lot of coworkers in China and Shanghai, and uh, we actually hosted an event there last year that we called somewhat provocatively China is 10 years ahead, talking about a lot of the consumer behaviors in China being much further along than they are in Western countries. And so like I had been talking about WeChat and I had sort of read some of the use cases but it was remarkable when I got there. Like the, the first thing I learned is our entire Shanghai office used WeChat exclusively to conduct business. They're only using email when they have to communicate with someone from the West. Literally, like that's the inner office communication. That's what they're doing all of their work on. And then, uh, as you had mentioned, uh, WeChat in particular is a pretty robust platform. So like the Chinese equivalent of Uber, well, Uber exists in China, but it's not as popular the the indigenous version of Uber runs through WeChat and a bunch of the services run through WeChat. And, you know, as a result, a lot of brands have invested a lot more effort in being on WeChat and being able to personally interact with consumers. So it's it's way more common to see customer service being provided over chat. Um, there's a ton of these chat bots that provide business services to people, um, and it's it's fascinating. And you know, at that event, the big comp- the big uh, debate that we were having is, you know, it is China ten years ahead. Are are uh, the, these consumers that are using these chat apps as sort of platforms, and they're they're conducting a lot of their commerce, they're doing product searches, um, they're getting feedback and ratings and reviews, and and actually doing transactions through those products at a, a very high rate, whereas in the West, you know, we've in the last six months seen a, seen a lot of the social platforms add commerce features, and frankly, they've all landed like a lead balloon. Like nobody's really uh, consumers are not really flocking to these social commerce features. And so the the big debate is China a accurate prediction of how consumers will behave in the West, and they're just uh, adopting those behaviors earlier in China, or is there something fundamentally different about the the Western and Eastern markets that cause uh, markets like China to be conducting these kinds of commerce through social and and uh, not as much in the West. Yeah, and, and that was definitely a, a big topic. And the data points kind of for that, meaning that, yes, the West will look more like the East and this will be a trend. Um, so one of the things was that in China, 84% of smartphone users are, are on messaging primarily. Uh, it's their number one activity. Uh, and then they use the stat that in the U.S., 60% of users are active on Facebook Messenger, which surprised me. But it, I guess it kind of makes sense that Facebook is so huge, you know, with a billion daily users, and they've kind of pushed Messenger on to everybody that that I think they've become the kind of the fact of. In fact, 
you know, at, at that conference, and when I talk about this a lot, everyone believes like this is Facebook's to lose because they have Facebook Messenger, and then right behind that, they have WhatsApp, which they acquired, um, and they've got um, you know the guy from PayPal running all this stuff. Um, everyone feels like they're they're kind of the in the dominant position to be the WeChat of the West. Um, so that was interesting to hear some of those stats. Um, the a couple of other things that that were interesting to your point on chatbots. Uh, you know, the when you hear these folks that are so deep into chat talk, they don't they don't talk about apps anymore. Chat bots are kind of the equivalent of apps. Um, and it's pretty interesting there. Some of them can be pretty, pretty simple, you know, like checking the status of something or a little bot that will you can chat with and get stock quotes or something like that, or check your bank balance. Um, other ones get a little bit more involved, like some of the e-commerce things. Uh, uh, the, an interesting stat that, that I heard was there's more bots that are put onto WeChat every day now versus new websites in China on the on the internet. So it has become such a pervasive platform that all the developers have moved over to build bots. So they went from kind of like you know um, applications to websites to apps to bots now. So it's kind of interesting to think through that that side of things. And um, for all of our retail listeners, you know, what would what would your bot be? You know, how are you going to if we kind of if this is the reality, what's you know, do you do one bot? Do you do a family of bots? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Wow. Yeah. Um, well let me start by just uh, sort of giving some examples of what the bots might might look like so people understand what we're talking about. Like some of the, the simple ones are like little automated services. So, you know, you might send a query to a, to a retailer about what their hours are and get an automated response back. And that's, that's basically a, a simple chat bot that's responding to a particular question it gets. Um, but in China, some, some of the use cases are, uh, what to me feel super intrusive. So in the same way you can buy keywords, uh, on Google for organic search, you can actually buy keywords in someone's private chat with a friend of theirs on WeChat or Weixing, the the you know some of the original chat platforms in in China, um, and so you can literally when two people are talking to each other and they mention Nike shoes, mm-hmm. Nike can buy that term and have a bot interject, uh, "Hey, do you have any questions about Nike shoes that we can answer?" and and literally turn that into a commerce experience. And a shocking amount of sales result from those kinds of interactive bots that are sort of sniffing the the private chat streams on those services. Yeah, and when I um, I've used that example, you know, probably several hundred times, and everyone in the U.S. is always shocked by it, and they're like, "That's an invasion of my privacy." And and I'm kind of I think it's funny because you know Google reads your Gmail for ad targeting, and you know we have retargeting where everyone knows everything you've added to every cart on there. Why? Why do people feel like messaging is this kind of you know uh, is out outside of that bubble for some reason is is kind of interesting to me exactly and when you send a private email to someone else on Yahoo uh, webmail and you get a, a very targeted ad that doesn't seem intrusive but to but to do it in a chat for some reason does it is it's yeah but it's usually older folks if you know millennials are like yeah whatever. Yeah, we don't get it. Although uh, we might talk about who's coming after millennials, and and uh, there's some indication that they might care more. Um, that's a that's what we like to call a teaser in the podcast world. Mm, good, I like that. Um, and only and if only if people subscribe, will they find out what the heck you're talking about? Exactly. <laughs> you know, it is interesting. Chat clearly seems like it is up and coming in the West, and I I, I do think there's a fair amount of evidence that. 
that uh, we are just a little more slowly adopting some of those same chat behaviors that we're seeing elsewhere in the world. And so if I were a retailer, I would absolutely be thinking about the the services and, and uh, you know, in particular, customer service being provided via chat and, you know, sort of thinking about what my world looks like. And I would absolutely be taking trips to China and South Korea and Japan um, to watch consumer behavior there, because I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn here in the West. Even brands, um, you know, one topic that we're going to talk about a lot in upcoming podcast is brands going direct. And a lot of them are kind of thinking about, well, how do I build out customer service? And uh, I worry by the time they figure that out, it's going to have moved from phone and email to chat. And you might as well just kind of start at chat at this point. So there, there's a lot to think through there in the world of e-commerce. There is a lot of buzz around Snapchat uh, for brands that was kind of interesting. You know, we, in the world of e-commerce, we don't talk about Snapchat much, but but there's really starting to get some some traction there. Um, Discovery Channel had set up a Snapchat. Uh, I'm sorry, not Discovery Channel, but uh, I forget the brand. I think it was Victoria's Secret or one of those. And um, they had over 3 million kind of views off this Discovery Channel on Snapchat. And then BuzzFeed disclosed at the show that uh, 21% of their content is consumed on Snapchat. They have one of these Discovery Channels. And so it's really interesting. Snapchat seems to be kind of getting at this from a news content for millennials kind of perspective, which, which I thought was was pretty interesting. It's another kind of player in this market that I don't think people count too much in there because they kind of talk mostly about Facebook in my experience through the, you know, the messenger and WhatsApp. Um, so it's going to be interesting. And then kick is sometimes mentioned as this underdog. They've taken an investment from 10 cent and they're a unicorn, which means they're valued over a billion dollars. And so they, they definitely have capital, um, uh, to kind of play in this space as well. So it's definitely an interesting area that, that I've been keeping an eye on. Yep, absolutely. And it, you know, there is this dichotomy with a number of these services where they're, they're building a really, um, appealing audience to brands, but that they, the platform itself doesn't have super friendly features for brands, or at least to interact in the traditional marketing ways that brands are usually, are used to re- uh, interacting. And so, you know, platforms like Snapchat and certainly Instagram that are, you know, starting to develop these really interesting audiences are are a little less accessible to brands because brands have to learn new ways to have their brand message on those platforms. The traditional, you know, buy a display ad type thing don't don't really work there. So three more stats to kind of just get to this. Will this happen in the West question? Um, in the U.S. today, when you look at mobile usage and kind of the, the pie chart of where people spend their time, uh, number one is still social at 17%, but messaging has creeped up to number two at 10%, and it passed image sharing, uh, which is now number three at 8%. So that, that's kind of interesting. It's kind of working its way up the list there. Um, the other stat I thought was interesting is uh, the messaging apps have a five times open rate of traditional apps, uh, including social, because you know messaging is just much more interactive and when you get that notification uh, of "Hey, you know, so and so sent you a message," that's much more um, pulls you in versus uh, you know someone gave you a thumbs up on Facebook or retweeted or something like that. Um, and then the average user in the U.S. Uh, you know uh, sends a message nine times a day. So, so all these numbers around messaging are up and to the right, which is another kind of indicator that we are 
trending towards where China is. So, so I tend to fall into the camp that uh, it's still early days, but in the next 18 to 24 months, then I think these platforms will take hold and it'll be interesting to see if it builds out like we see in China. Um, the last stat that blew my mind was on WeChat. They have something like 800 million active users. Uh, 400 million of them have an active payment account on the platform. Um, and you know, to put that in perspective, eBay has like 200 million active uh, buyers and uh, PayPal is around that same, a little bit lower than 200 million. So, so these these platforms are massive, uh, and and the usage is off the charts, and it's become a very horizontal play of of different bots that that people are using for buying things and sending money and all kinds of interesting things. Yep, I, I uh, had a, a coworker in China tell me that she had inadvertently left her wallet at home. Um, and you had a long commute to the office. So she got to the office just with her smartphone and she was easily able to get through her day, have three meals, get multiple taxis, um, and conduct all the business that she wanted to, to conduct, uh, inside of WeChat on her smartphone, including, you know, paying other people and paying for services and, you know, frank, even paying for physical services. Mm-hmm. Um, so for sure that's a common behavior. It, it's interesting because there's, um, when we talk about, well, gosh, why is that so big in China and it, it's not as big here? Like one of the premises that you hear a lot is uh, because of how the, the various services evolved in China versus in the U.S. So, uh, you know, in the U.S., we, we had the Internet much earlier. Um, commerce became, you know, a big thing in the 2000s and social network didn't really um, catch on until the, you know, or become as big a thing, uh, until the like 2010s. And so users sort of learned those behaviors separately. They learned to do commerce digitally and then they learned to do social digitally. And they, they thought of the two as separate activities and, and that, you know, in China, this middle class emerged and had sort of simultaneous access to the internet, commerce and chat. And oh, by the way, those are primarily young users that have a lot of purchasing power in China, whereas uh, young people in the West do not have as much purchasing power at the moment. And so there's this there's this interesting uh, evaluation that within say, but you know, kids born today in the West are going to have all these things simultaneously, and therefore will behave much more like the the Eastern consumer. And that it, it is an interesting theory. I, I would say that. For sure, millennials and even the, the, you know, now 17 and 18 year old Gen Z's or whatever you want to call them that are coming after the millennials are not embracing things like social commerce as much in the West, although they absolutely are embracing the chat services and the image based communication services and some of, some of those things. So I, still say the the jury is out like i i i absolutely think that there are some uh popular elements of the user experience in the east that are certainly coming to the west and so i think it's smart for all western businesses and brands to be looking east but i would be careful about predicting that the the model we see in the east is a perfect predictor for what we are going to get in the west yeah you, uh, that's actually a good segue. The uh, other thing I picked up on it, the, at all these shows was, um, you know, everyone's been obsessed with millennials for, for the last three or four years. And for the first time, uh, that, that I've noticed, there was a lot of talk about Gen Z. Uh, and that's kind of what they're officially calling them is Generation Z, the, the generation after millennials. Um, 
I, I guess that's what they're officially, I don't know who officially calls these things, but, but it was interesting to just kind of hear several folks talk about, and these are folks like the CEO of Verizon and Comcast kind of talking about, yeah, you know, we've, uh, you know, a lot of folks have missed millennials. Now it's time to worry about Gen Z. And they use that when they're talking about unbundling of cable services and things of that nature. Um, you know, the behaviors around how, uh, people are consuming video is, 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 you know, now they, they were less talking about millennials and more about Gen Z, which I, there was definitely a pivot there that, that I had not picked up on any other kind of conference I'd been to where almost everyone was just kind of like, you know, millennials are kind of behind us. Now we're talking about Gen Z. Um, what do you think about Gen Z? Yeah. Um, well, so first of all, I uh, definitely think it's a funny thing. You know, when you're talking to marketers and, and you say, hey, do you have a millennial strategy? And, you know, gosh, we're not sure we figured it out. Like the perfect answer there is, uh, well, good news, you're too late, right? Like you you <laughs> absolutely ought to be focusing on this this next cohort um, because the um, it already looks like they're going to be bigger. Um, Gen Z, uh, which are, you know, at the moment are people that are sort of under 19 years old in, in the U.S., are, are going to be a slightly bigger cohort even than millennials. And millennials are the largest cohort. So it kind of goes like boomers are 23% of the population, uh, millennials are 24.5% of the population, and Gen Z is 26% of the population. So it's a very big cohort. Um, and I'm of two minds because we, we already have evidence that those, uh, Gen Z, uh, consumers do have some fundamental differences from millennials. And so as a marketer, you know, I start thinking about how, how I need to shape my messaging and shape my products and services to, to, uh, cater to that new sensibility. But at the same time, I, 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 I have to ask myself, are we ever going to do segmented marketing to Generation Z like we, we do now to millennials or did to boomers. Like part of me thinks that personalization and the technology to do one-to-one marketing is going to be so much better that by the time Gen Z has meaningful purchasing power, we may not be thinking about these segments anymore. Like they may be irrelevant because we may be able to treat each person as an individual. Um, or at least I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful that that's the case. Um, but I will say there, uh, that, there is a lot of interesting thought leadership emerging around Gen Z. Number one, you alluded to, there's some controversy about what to call them. And uh, I know this week uh, MTV did a quote-unquote nationwide survey, and I'm, I'm being somewhat sarcastic because I think they got like a 1,000 responses um, <laughs> about what Gen Z wanted to call themselves. And I, and I think what they voted uh, to call themselves is the founders generation. Whether that catches on or not, like I think there's – there's something just interesting in the in the self selection that they that they think of themselves as as uh, founders. Um, the you know I will tell you like some some of the like high level uh, bullets on Gen Z is that they're natively used to multitasking across five screens. So whereas you know millennials were sort of the first digital generation and were used to a couple screens, Gen Z take it much further and and are you know seamlessly moving across all these different devices. Um, there's evidence that their attention span is even shorter. I think that's a, a natural human thing is our, our attention spans are just shortening um, as we go. Uh, Wait, what were we talking about? Yeah, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> the And we passed this cool inflection point. Like, our, our, I don't know how you measure attention span, but they – or someone tried to explain it to me, but I lost uh, focus. Um, <laughs> they – 
apparently we used to have an attention span of 12 seconds and now it's down to eight seconds. And, uh, and some really smart scientists have been able to measure the attention span of a goldfish, which is also eight seconds. So we're, we're now tied with a goldfish, which, uh, you don't see a lot of goldfish able to watch streaming media on multiple devices. So I still feel like we have an edge. We, yeah, we do. And the thumbs thing I think is going to play in our favor as well. It's big. It is. And especially for this next thing, uh, the thing, the best piece of news is, that Gen Z seem a whole lot more interested in shopping than millennials did. And shopping is emerging as a, as a entertainment activity for them more so than we're seeing for millennials. What Gen Z, uh, when they think of shopping, thinking, think of it as a majority digital activity. Um, so that, you know, is a, another warning sign for, for traditional brick and mortar retailers. But, there are some key differences. A lot of people talk about Gen Z as sort of the maker's generation. And part of this is these are the kids that grew up playing Minecraft constantly. And there's a super popular programming language for 10-year-olds called Scratch. Um, and, you know, this is the generation that grew up with, like, the Arduino as a toy. And so, they, you know, they've had all of these tools that are around creating their own things, which is, I think, where the the founder's label comes from. But we're definitely seeing that they're sort of makers versus, you know, you think of millennials as more users of technology. Their behaviors around uh, privacy are a little different. They're a little more judicious shares, whereas the millennials were sort of the first generation to embrace this radical transparency. Uh, they have a lot less brand loyalty than any generation before them. They're very ambivalent about different brands. We're definitely seeing them spend more of their disposable income on on entertainment and food versus things like clothes, which is... So your definition of Gen Z is what? Millennials are 35 to 25 and you're under 25 for Gen Z or... Well, so that that's one of the funny things. Like in addition to label, no one agrees on the exact ages or dates for these cohorts. Well, let's do an I agree, and then we'll just yeah. everyone else so can. I'm, I'm uh, defining in in 2015. I'm defining uh, millennials as 20 years and older, and Gen Z as 19 and under. Okay, so you do millennials 20 to 35. Is that kind of exactly 34 yeah. or something in there? Yeah. So it's just it's it is fascinating that there there are these fundamental differences. Um, that marketers are going to have to be thinking about, and then you know I I do go back to my original point. But if there's, you know, 10 uh, Gen Zers that are super retro and behave like boomers, like I think we're going to have the technology and the data savviness to treat them exactly how they want to be treated. Cool. Another thing uh, that I wanted to throw out there um, is just a couple of interesting companies that that were there talking um one is pretty well known. It's the mattress company that goes direct called Casper, and it was interesting to hear them. Um, they were actually on a panel at one of the Wall Street uh, areas talking about how they've built their their business and this whole meme of of brands going direct and bypassing stores and going direct to the consumer. Uh, you know, like like the uh, the Warbies, the Bonobos, and all those guys. They they kind of represented that that group. Um, uh, Mark Laurie was there from Jet, and he was talking about uh, their model, which was kind of interesting. Um, I'm pretty familiar with that, and we've talked about it a fair amount, so we don't have to go into it. They did say that on Cyber Monday, they did, I think he said 2.7 million, which was kind of a record for them. So that was kind of a new data point. When you're um, in your first year, isn't anything you do on Cyber Monday a record? That is true. Yeah, good point. And they're only four months uh, into it. So still, you know, I guess they felt pretty good about it. And then uh, I'd never heard the CEO of Blue Apron speak, but I was pretty impressed by by him. It was a bit of a tough interview because the lady interviewing him was really hung up on the price of it. Um, so I guess 
the way this works is it's uh, – I had heard of plated a little bit more than Blue Apron, but uh, it's evidently kind of worked its way west to east, and I think plated was more east to west. So uh, Blue Apron, there's several different plans, but you sign up for meal delivery, and you get the ingredients kind of pre-measured and, and all ready to go. Um, I, I don't know what they do about meat. I know you've tried this, so I want to hear what they do about meat and that kind of thing. Uh, and then, uh, you know, about for, they said on the couple's plan, it's $9 a person a meal. And then for family, it gets down to $8.99 or $7.99, but it ends up being essentially kind of $70 a week. Um, so the reporter was kind of hung up on, you know, that versus, uh, you know, uh, which if you do the math is $280 a month versus kind of $10 for Netflix, which was kind of, a little bit apples and oranges are not terribly fair of them. And the guy kept saying, yeah, you know, we're, we're giving you food and Netflix is giving you movies and it's kind of a different thing. His whole point was that actually when you look at the cost of the ingredients, it would cost you 60% more to go buy them yourself because they're buying them in volume and they've cut out that entire supply chain. So they're going kind of farm to you um, directly and cutting out all the stuff in the middle. So so that was kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a bit kind of fascinated by this whole on-demand thing and I thought that was kind of an interesting talk that I saw. Uh, what's your thought on, on the Blue Apron guys? Uh, I am a fan. My wife and I used them for about a year. And so, yeah, the basic experience, like uh, we, we did the couple's plan. And so we'd get three meals a week. And essentially, you pick the day you want to receive them and you receive this box that they ship to you. And in that box are all the, uh, the every ingredient you need except salt for these three meals. And so there, you can, you can have a blend of proteins and vegetarian meals, although I don't know why anyone would do that. In our case, we were, we were all protein meals. You can kind of specify some dietary preferences. So if you don't like fish or whatever, you can, you can skip the fish meals, but the, the packaging is really clever. So you get this one cardboard box and the bottom is a cold section that has cold packs and the meats are in there and they're all like vacuum packed. Um, and then above them are all the like produce and like individually portioned spices and things like that. And then this nicely produced recipe card that, uh, you know, one, one sheet of paper for each meal that shows you what the meal is and gives you directions for cooking it and sort of, uh, teaches you about the meal. And, um, my wife and I really enjoyed it because it sort of forced us to cook a lot of things and eat a lot of foods that, you know, in our, own rut and as creatures of habit, we probably wouldn't have done. And so I, I definitely felt like it expanded our culinary horizons and caused us to be a little more diverse. And, you know, frankly, for what we got, like it felt like a pretty good value compared to, you know, what we probably spent per meal when we went to Whole Foods on our own, or certainly if you have Grubhub or something like that delivered, it was a lot less expensive. Was it, were the meals good or was it like kale sandwiches three times a week no 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 i yeah i opted out of most of the kale so i i would say the majority of the meals were really good um and and you know every week one of those three meals would really jump out at you like and for me that would typically be whichever one was the least healthy <laughs> and and so you might look forward to some some more than others but like what got us in the long run is it's a lot of pressure right like and so you know, not every week are you, uh, does it work in your schedule to be home on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night to cook those three meals? They have like good tools. You can skip a week or turn it off and do all these different things. But inevitably, you're going to mess up and start getting meals delivered on a week you didn't plan to cook or, or get lazy and not want to cook. And we just kind of crossed this threshold where we were fe- feeling more guilt about the meals that got shipped to us that we didn't make than the enjoyment we were getting out of cooking it. So we got a little bit of a fatigue after a year and turned it off. But I, I could easily imagine 
turning it back on at some. So it feels like if they'd given you a little bit more control and ability to kind of throttle it, maybe you would still be a customer. It's kind of the three a week is kind of a, a lot for your. I know that would that would be tough for us because there may be a week when things don't align and we're able to to get to all three. You know exactly, exactly. Um, but I, you know, I think their service was really good. So an, another interesting thing that kind of happened is I was at these two Wall Street conferences um, and talking about e-commerce. And one trend that's really interesting in, in the world of Wall Street is you used to have uh, kind of retail analysts and then and they would follow the retailers. So they would have Macy's and Ralph Lauren and you know whoever, um, Walmart and, and whatnot. And then you would have kind of the internet analyst. And the internet analyst would cover um, – he would cover Amazon, he or she, and then they would cover like maybe Yahoo and Google or something like that. What's starting to happen is as these banks kind of consolidate and, and – so I mentioned KeyBank has acquired. Pacific Crest, they've consolidated their analyst, and now the retail analyst is covering e-commerce. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting. It's kind of like the same wave that's happened to the big retailers we know, where you know it used to be this separate little rogue group was e-commerce, and now it's kind of e-commerce has kind of eaten its way into the org, and many times and, and become the org, or at least kind of integrated in. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting, but. What happens is you've got this whole new wave of analysts now that are coming at e-commerce from a very retail perspective. And the number one question I get there is, uh, you know, all right, so all these retailers have invested in all these stores. What what should they be doing? You know, and what are signals that are being successful in e-commerce? And, and what's essentially the future of retail? Um you know, the signals of e-commerce are, are obvious. It's kind of, you know, are they growing at least 15%, which is the benchmark is, you know, do they have, you know, you know, do they outsource e-commerce or is it fully integrated and part of what they do? How omni-channel are they? Those kinds of things. Um, the one that's really interesting though to think through, I think, uh, and you and I spent a lot of time uh, kind of, you know, looking at this is what, what is the future of that retail store? You know, I think clearly big boxes is, is really under a lot of pressure. Um, you know, I was trying to get some office supplies today and, and, you know, three of the, uh, office stores I tried to go to are closed, uh, you know, which is kind of funny. I didn't know that because I guess I don't go there very often, but, um, you know, it, it, it's getting harder and harder with these big boxes to, you know, see them actually growing. Many of them are, are closing. So, um, you know, the thing, my answer was I, I really am fascinated by what I call this hybrid model where you have, and, and a lot of people point to Apple. I, I think it's a little bit different than that, but this, this, you have a showroom and you, you still have that product experience there where you can touch it, feel it, try it on, sit on it, whatever it is. Uh, but then there's really almost no product on the shelves. The product gets shipped to you or there's very limited product in the store. So it's more of a showroom. Use that really expensive retail space to show the products and, and to highlight it and have an experience with the products. And then you, you know, the rest of it, you cut out the storage of product and things and you put that back into the fulfillment center. So, um, we, we talked on the previous podcast about the Amazon bookstore is very much in that model. Um, in New York, uh, it was interesting. I, they always uh, tend to have some things there. Um, I went to the Birchbox store for the first time, uh, and uh, it was interesting. It, it's been open for uh, 18 months, one of the folks was telling me. Uh, and uh, like you, I'm sure I always strike up a conversation with the um, attendance of these things. And she's, you know, they're very open about stuff, which is always fun. And she's like, yeah, it didn't really do well. And then three months ago, we changed the layout of the store. 
to organize it much more. It used to be kind of like a birch box where it's like kind of a bunch of random stuff in the store. And they thought that people would like that experience, but people got frustrated. They were looking for hair products or skin products or men and women, and they couldn't find it. It was all jumbled together. So they redid the store. Um, she said three months ago to be much more oriented around. Um, it was interesting. You had kind of samples in one little place and then full size product. And it was very much organized around usage of, you know, uh, you know, makeup kind of stuff for women and men's was downstairs and even men's was divided into to shaving skincare and that kind of thing. Um, so what was interesting about it was my wife had tried Birchbox and didn't really care for it because she couldn't control what she was getting, but she really loved the store because it had stuff she had never seen anywhere else. She could try it. Uh, and then they had build your own boxes so she could build your own gift box. Um, and then she could, you know, which was full size product and she could build her own samples. So, so that, that was pretty interesting. Okay. Well, first of all, how do you feel about that whole future of offline retail, um, that hybrid model, and then and any other kind of things you want to share there? Yeah, I, I do think that show that sort of showroom experience is important. And you know, the the example we talk about a lot is Bonobos Guide Shop, which is exactly that. Like you can go and get fitted for clothes, meet a stylist that'll help you figure out what you look good in. But they have no live product in the guide shop, so you're exclusively gonna create desire in that in that showroom and then order all your products online. Um, and, you know, even like a Werby Parker that do have inventory in the stores, they're, they're hoping to build a relationship with a brand in that store. And then they're hoping you'll go home and order many other pair of inexpensive glasses as fashion accessories once you get home. So I, I, I definitely think uh, that is an important role that the store of the future can play um, and not like exclusively try to capture the orders through that channel. The I was curious, should I be expecting a Birchbox uh, gift set for my Hanukkah this year? Uh, no spoilers. It is your birthday. Happy birthday. Hey, thanks very much. I noticed I did not get one for my birthday, so I was a little disappointed. Sorry. There, obviously, another big store that opened in New York this week is the Target pop-up store, the Wonderland store. Did you get a chance to visit that? We did. We went by um, Monday, and it said opening Wednesday, so we went back Wednesday, and um, it was pretty cool. It was very interesting. It was it was very big, um, so I would say 10,000 square feet, maybe 15. Um and uh, a lot of it was just kind of experiential. So you go in and you enter your name in a computer and they give you an RFID tag to wear around your neck. Um, and then there's this kind of, you know, uh, Rube Goldberg ball machine that you you turn some cranks and then a ball goes and then you go through this kind of tunnel into Wonderland. Um, so that, that was super fun. And <laughs> and when you're in Wonderland, there's about eight different experiences. Um, uh, some of the ones that, that just come to mind, there's a live... Um, a giant etch-a-sketch, so they'll take your picture and convert it to an etch-a-sketch. Uh, I did that; that was that was fun. Uh, and then there's um, a couple of games. There's a connect kind of driven game where you ride a little sled down a hill. There's a ball pit for for kids. Um, they did not like it when I got in the ball pit and started wrestling with <laughs> some of the kids. Like, Sir, get out of the ball pit. Um, you know, uh, there was a uh, there was a cool Avengers display, which was a Christmas tree made out of uh, big green Hulk hands with a Captain America shield at the top. Um, there was a drone experimental area where you could fly the Millennium Falcon drone in this kind of netted area. And they had uh, some of the little target elves in there, and uh, they would help you out. Uh, there was a place where you could r- race little RC cars um, and things. 
So, um, you know, it's interesting. You haven't heard me talk too much about product. The, the product was actually pretty sparse in the store, to be honest with you. There was maybe 10 stations where you could buy, you know, some top sellers like, um, uh, the remote control BB-8, the, uh, there was a fair amount of Star Wars stuff, the Millennium Falcon drone and some of those RC cars, um, some of the Avenger stuff you could buy. And what you would do is you would just walk up to an interactive screen, scan your, um, scan your RFID tag and it would add it to your cart. Um, I didn't end up buying anything. I was an abandoned cart. And, um, at the end, when you're ready to buy, you go up to this little desk and they, uh, they check you out. And then, uh, there's a fireplace and your, your products drop out of that fireplace as if delivered by Santa. It's pretty cool. Um, so what was interesting to me was um, a couple things. They had these pre-made bundles, which was kind of an interesting experience. So they had put together um, four different experiences. So one of them was called um, Disco Bath Night, which was uh, which is exciting to think about. So it had a disco ball, some colored bath things. It's obviously for kids, and a couple other little things. And and uh, so that was interesting. Little pre-made bundles that you could kind of uh, you could watch a video about them and then swipe your tag to buy them. Um, so my, my conclusions was it was a lot of fun. Um, de- definitely felt like they weren't selling a lot of product there. There was more employees than, than attendees. It was still kind of the first day it opened though. Um, but some of the experiences were pretty interesting. And, uh, I did read an article after I went there that said they're really kind of closely watching how people move throughout the store, which kind of creeped me out after having been there. I was kind of like, Hmm, how did I move through the store? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I don't think they'll draw much conclusion. So we just went to everywhere. There wasn't a line, which was kind of the, the thinking. Um, so it, it was an interesting experience and it was, a, you know, it, I don't know how much they're spending on it, but it was a lot and it'll be interesting to see what, what kind of innovations get driven out of that. It was very much this, this kind of showroom kind of thing we're talking about though. Yeah, no. And I, I, I do think that, that there's a couple of things in that store that feel to me like part of the future of retail as well. Certainly like, physical retail's role as a brand ambassador and being able to create an experience that's hard to create online. Uh, again, not to sell you every good, but to have these sort of extraordinary occasional touch points that help, you know, sort of um, more closely tie you to the, the brand target in this case. You know, I think that more experiential retail certainly has a future. And then, you know, you made the point earlier that uh, the future doesn't look super bright for big box, I tend to agree. I mean, I think Big Box was born out of a, a need to win on assortment and have a much broader assortment than the specialty retailers that we were used to. And now, of course, a physical store is never going to win on assortment versus an online store. So we're seeing lots of new retail concepts emerge that have to fit in smaller spaces. And so one of the interesting things to me about the the Wonderland store is all the live inventory is in the back and is therefore much more space efficient. And so ironically, we're going back to the original origins of retail. Like before about 1930, you you did all your shopping with a, a clerk who then went and got all your items from the back. And that's much more space efficient. But uh, starting with Piggly Wiggly, you know, re- retailers started teaching consumers that we, they could shift that labor cost to the consumer and have them pick their own goods off the shelf. And so in some ways, it's interesting if that target model plays out, that's a more space efficient way. Um, and obviously, they're using technology. They're using those beacons that, that they gave you when you walked in that you wear around your, your neck on a lanyard. Those beacons let you order products that then put them in the, in the queue to be delivered to the fireplace. And uh, as you may have surmised, that beacon's also what they're using to track you around the store and understand your exact behavior. And mm-hmm. so for the first time in a retail store, you get the same kind of analytics that we're used to on the web, right? Like they, yeah. 
they uh, can see conversion rate of individual displays and they can see dwell time and things like that. And so it's, it's allowing them to replace a lot of the, the sort of old intuition we use to design stores with the same sort of data-driven design principles that we, we use online. And that, to me, feels like part of the future. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Another store that opened on the other coast this this week, there's a store cleverly or annoyingly, depending on your perspective, named uh, the Beta Store. And it's spelled B, the number 8-T-A. And so this is stores opening in Palo Alto. This is some ex-Nest guys. And their notion is that we need a new model for the store, that, that digital consumers that are used to all these online experiences, that are used to ratings and reviews, that are used to richer product information, and the taxonomy of the store changing depending on your needs, all these things that we've learned to uh, depend on in online shopping need to find a way to be delivered in brick-and-mortar stores if brick-and-mortar stores are going to be successful. So they've really designed this new digitally connected store format. And the the first version of the, the store is featuring Internet of Things products, and particularly products that are hard to sell without some hands-on demo. So they're doing a lot of higher-end drones that, you know, you might not be comfortable making a $1,000 purchase without getting a chance to fly one of these things. And a, a lot of, like, expensive, considered purchases that really require a demo, they put into this cool technology store. And, you know, they, they have a kind of cool modern aesthetic and, and a great understanding of technology. And so it's I haven't gotten a chance to visit the store since it opened, but I'm, I'm eager to go check that out. So that's called the, the beta store on uh, University Ave in Palo Alto. Cool. And then I think one other big piece of news that happened today, so sort of fortuitous timing that we, we recorded the podcast a day late, um, Walmart chose my birthday to launch their new payment platform. Mm. What do you think about it? <laughs> well, I, I have mixed <laughs> feelings. So the, the first super interesting thing to know is they're announcing this new mobile payment that uses the Walmart app. So they're building payments into the app that, that they've already deployed to a bunch of consumers. And this was big news because Walmart was one of the main sponsors of the, the current C, which is a, you know, a payment standard that a bunch of retailers participated in. And obviously all these retailers hate paying interchange fees to credit card companies. And so, you know, the, the retailers are saying, well, gosh, if we can invent our own payment system and it can just take cash straight out of people's bank accounts using a ACH, um, transaction that, that can really save us a lot of money. And so Walmart was one of the big sponsors of currency. You know, they got in, they signed, uh, exclusive deals to not let retailers accept Apple Pay and other, other mobile wallets. And currency has taken forever to come out. And, you know, they've missed a bunch of, of news cycles. And now Walmart themselves, who is really the biggest sponsor, seems to have, you know, abandoned them or at least sort of cut them off at the knees by saying that Walmart themselves are going to offer a Walmart branded mobile payment solution. So I, I certainly, I, I don't have any stock in, in WMX, um, who makes currency, but, uh, I, I certainly don't have, uh, high hopes for them at the moment was my, my first big takeaway. Hearing you talk about it, it feels more like the Starbucks kind of a solution than kind of a, you know, one of the tap to pay kind of wallets. Yeah. So it, it is, um, with a, a huge exception that I think is going to be interesting to follow. So 
It, it absolutely it uses a, a picture of a QR code that you take a picture of the QR code using the, the camera embedded in your mobile phone. So it's exactly opposite of Starbucks. In the Starbucks app, the QR code is on your phone, and the POS system has a CCD scanner that can see your phone screen. In the Walmart model, the, the QR code is on the, the cash register, and you take a picture of that using the Walmart app. And so the reason they're doing that is is a couple things. It's the most universal way to offer payments on any kind of smartphone. So it, as soon as you want to use NFC chips or or something like that or special features that require a particular OS, you're immediately limiting your market to only certain kinds of hardware, only hardware that have a particular chip or a particular flavor of OS. And by by using these QR codes, they they can uh offer it to a broader market. There's more cameras than NFC chips. Exactly. And I think the reason that they're doing it opposite of Starbucks is that you can actually have more security by like having the authentication happen in your mobile app. It's uh, much more secure. So in the Starbucks model, like anyone that takes a picture of your QR code has essentially stolen your identity and then can purchase products at Starbucks using your QR code. There's no authentication for each purchase. And so the, the Walmart model is probably more secure I don't know if Walmart already had a, a POS scanners that could have read smartphones, but like potentially they didn't want to invest in a bunch of hardware, and so this would have uh, this approach d- means that that they don't have to have a particular kind of scanner. If they steal the QR code, they pay for your stuff, so you're okay with it. Exactly, charging it, you're like, please scan my QR code. Exactly, and it eliminates the risk that an, a customer is going to hand their smartphone to an employee, which happens at Starbucks all the time. And there's a fair amount of liability risk associated with that when that that barista drops your phone. Um, so I saw a hint that there's something around prescriptions. Do you know what that is? So there was some some quote by Neil Ash saying that this is going to be especially big in the pharmacy. So I don't I don't know. I did not pick that up, so I, I don't know what that is. Okay, but I have to tell you, uh, I think. Scanning a QR code from your phone is not a super seamless, easy thing to do for a lot of typical smartphone users. So I'm worried the Starbucks QR code system, which has been phenomenally successful, is not as fast as handing the the barista a a credit card with a barcode on it. Um, And this system is likely to be even slower. So uh, one thing that's interesting that I've noticed, um, and you, you kind of alerted me to this is the whole, um, the chip system has really slowed down my checkouts. So my, you know, starting whenever that date was, everyone is requiring that. Uh, and I have found actually now that tap to pay or even, um, you know, scanning something is his, it, it's actually made it, that could oddly be the death of credit cards because it's so much more complicated than swiping now. No, I think you're exactly right. I think before chip and signature, the MagStrip worked awesome, and all of these technologies actually were slower and less convenient. But now that we have this messed up partial chip and signature solution in the U.S., the the credit cards are now a pain in the neck, and so suddenly some of these these other systems seem more more appealing. And and just to kind of recap, it is slower to use to dip the credit card in the machine than it used to be to swipe it. And at the moment, not every consumer knows how to do that. So they make mistakes and they accidentally pull the card out. And mm-hmm. if you pull the card out in the middle of the transaction, you're, you're aborting the transaction, which is happening all the time right now. But yeah. worst of all, half of the retailers have decided not to use the, the dip. And so you as a consumer have no idea when you're standing in front of a terminal, if that terminal is going to make you dip or swipe. And so 
it's it's a stupid guessing game at the moment, which which guarantees that there's going to be confusion. So uh, I think the Walmart system is going to be <laughs> awkward. But you're right. Like may, maybe it will win because people will come to to hate credit cards now that. We have- but if the Walmart app does it well, like like I don't find scanning barcodes in the Amazon or eBay app hard to do. You know, QR codes are hard because you have to remember which of your apps can do QR codes. Yeah, but if if you know it's the Walmart app, I, I don't. Yeah, and then this solves that problem. It's for sure a, a a handy menu in the Walmart app, but still, uh, you know, different phones have different abilities to focus, and so sometimes you need to help the phone get focus on that QR code, and you've got to frame it so you have to move the phone forward and backwards. Um, and so there's, there's just a little bit of finagling, you know, who know if, if you're a regular user, I'm certain that you're going to become proficient at it. And, you know, one thing I really like about it is, as we've talked about before, retailers really struggle to get consumers to use their app. But if you can get consumers to regularly use that app, there's a bunch of competitive advantage, better conversion rate, the ability to use geolocation in the store, all these good things come with the app. And if they're using your app, they're not using Amazon's app. Exactly. And this is another potentially compelling reason. There are, you know, 100 million consumers that do weekly visits to Walmart for grocery shopping. And this is, you know, another compelling reason for a subset of those users to download their mobile app. So I, in, in that regard, I think it's uh, a smart play on the part of Walmart, but it's certainly going to hose their investment in uh, currency. I know it was actually rolling out here pretty quick. Uh, you know, when will I be able to use it in my store? Do you know? Uh, I don't. We'll post a link in the show notes, but they have, they've, they've, uh, they've uploaded some like demo videos and there's nothing in this system that requires any new hardware on the part of Walmart. So I imagine it is going to be imminently available, but I haven't seen them uh, specify the particular date. Cool. And then one last question. How, so you're in your Walmart app and in, in your Starbucks mode, you kind of load cash onto it and then deplete it. Is it that same kind of a model or is it more of an Apple Pay where I wire it into my different, it's more of a wallet? I, I think it's in between those two. I would think of it as closest to PayPal. You can attach any credit cards to it exactly like you do with Apple Pay, but you can also attach your bank account or your um, Walmart gift card to it. And then do they have incentives for that? Because obviously they... They, it doesn't cost them nearly as much. Exactly. Walmart hasn't specified, but you can bet that they're going to heavily promote um, the use of the, that ACH payment method where you you direct deposit the, the money from your bank account because, again, that, that would dr- uh, dramatically improve the margins on the transaction for Walmart. In a way, it, that's pretty interesting because you can't do that that I'm aware of with the Starbucks kind of thing or any of the other mobile tap wallets. There's... Um, I haven't seen an ACH kind of model. You know, you can connect it to your debit card, which I think is is um, you know similar. But I do think that that's still cheaper to do ACH versus kind of going through a debit card. Yeah, like Starbucks in it indirectly supports that, so they have an auto reload feature that can auto reload from ACH. Um, but you you can't just link it directly to your bank, so it takes out five bucks every time you get a latte. Instead, you've got to load fifty bucks from your bank to your Starbucks account, and then you know burn through that on the Starbucks mobile. So, yeah, and then Apple Pay doesn't really have ACH at all, right? No, not not at the moment. They're they're exclusively through payments. The last thing I would say there is. Walmart doesn't support any other mobile wallets on day one, but in that same uh, press conference, Neil Ash said that they absolutely intend to support other mobile wallets. And so, you know, part that you could imagine, like that, that was code for you may be able to link your Apple Pay or other 
Samsung Pay or other mobile wallets to the Walmart system so that you could fund the transactions from from any payment source that you choose. Interesting. Cool. So you think those would still use the QR thing is kind of your best guess. It wouldn't be a whole different use case. You know, all all TBD, you're obviously like attaching an Apple Pay account to that. If you can't then use the cool touchless Apple Pay feature doesn't seem very appealing. So yeah. So that that'll be interesting to see. It also, you know, Walmart doesn't have an affinity program, but they do have programs like Savings Catcher. So you can imagine, you know, you talked about this before that Savings Catcher is a separate manual step. Like you could imagine, autom- you know, if Walmart wanted to, they could automatically build Savings Catcher into this and yeah. proactively notify you if you should have paid less for anything. One contrarian thing is, isn't there like a very large percentage of Walmart customers pay with cash? So, yep, yeah. like thirty percent. And so, un, th- this is unlikely to to do anything for those sort of unbanked consumers. Yeah. And I think I joked with you on on uh, Twitter earlier. You know, if you make a list of all the things that are keeping people from adopting a mobile wallet right now, like I'm not sure that the biggest impediment is shoot there isn't you know one from a, a retail brand that i really love like walmart right like that it's only a, only usable there right exactly <laughs> the thing is it's kind of but you know walmart does it work at sam's do you know i wonder if they'll i wonder if they'll do that uh yeah they did not say uh i guess i would be a little surprised if it didn't but but uh we will have to see yeah so it's going to be interesting and and we'll keep an eye on it exactly and you have a big trip coming up I do. So one one logistic note on that note, uh, we recorded this show a day later than our usual Wednesday time to accommodate Walmart's announcement and your trip to New York. So to make up for that, we're going to uh, record next week's show a day early. And part of the reason we're going to do that is because I am going to be in Seoul, South Korea next week. And uh, we're we're going to try to do the the podcast multi continent from from Seoul. So uh, if all goes well, uh, we'll we'll have a a podcast uploaded uh, Tuesday night for for folks, including some of my observations about the the market there. It'll be the Asian North American uh, edition. Exactly. So we'll we'll finally be able to put to rest that question we asked this week about the sort of East versus West uh, consumer behavior. Yeah. What what are uh, give us some. Um hints about what you're going to be looking for when you're over in Korea from an e-commerce perspective. Yep. So there are some unique retail brands that are exclusively exist in, in South Korea that I've heard some great things about. So I'm, I'm interested to see some of the physical retail there. But I mentioned earlier that we did a symposium in China and we called it 10 years ahead. At that symposium, we were joking that next year it'll be uh, South Korea five years ahead of China. That in, in many cases, it's the most advanced digital market in the world. So more people grocery shop online in South Korea than in any other market. They, again, are big chat users. Um, now, there's a local chat system there called Kakao Chat, and uh, I'm retail geek on that system if anyone wants to reach me next week. The, they have a local search engine, which has quite a bit of market share over over Google. So Naver, I think, is like 70% of the local market for search. So we'll be checking that out. And uh, a personal favorite novelty, it's a highly wireless, highly connected infrastructure. And so I was able to pre-book this service where uh, I've reserved what they call a Wi-Fi egg. So this is a personal hotspot that uses the the local wireless signals there. And they'll, they, they literally have one waiting for me at the airport that I pick up when I get off the plane. Uh, and so I'll never have to, to, uh, go out of my own little personal zone of high speed, uh, internet access. Do you, um, hold it like a penguin between your feet or do you sit on it? What do you do with your Wi Fi? I'm going to leave that as a surprise for next okay. week. Okay. All right. 
Sounds good. I look forward to hearing about your interactions with your egg. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I know everyone else will. So that's one final reason for everyone to subscribe to the podcast. And if you you found value, uh, we'd certainly appreciate you leaving us a review in uh, iTunes. So, you know, with that, we probably uh, need to bring episode five to a close. Thanks very much, Scott. Yeah. Thanks, uh, everyone, for joining us and enjoy the rest of your birthday, Jason. Thank you very much. Talk to you next week from Seoul. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 